Um, all right, let's pray, and we'll go into the message time. Jesus, thank you that you're here. Thank you that we don't um, live as people with no hope. Thank you that we don't worship, though you're far off. And thank you that we don't need to speak like you're not in the room with us, Jesus. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would um, move in this place, that you would move in our hearts, and that you would transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So, how's the end of summer treating folks? Are we having fun? Are you having fun? I mean, watching people's Instagram, some of you are having lots of fun. <laughs> I appreciate seeing all the vacation pictures of the last few weeks as people are trying to get one last enjoyable thing in before uh, they send their children back to school and get back into the routine of layering all the things upon themselves before they, like, track out to their car to chip the ice off. Remember ice, church? Remember that stuff? not my favorite. Um, I've been having a really fun couple weeks with school supply shopping. Now, some of you are retired and don't quite remember this, or you're young, God bless you, and haven't experienced this, but I have five kids, and their teachers all want a very specific number of pre-sharpened Ticonderoga pencils. And those folders have to have the correct amount of prongs or no prongs, holes or no holes, and be in very specific colors. But don't worry, Target doesn't have any purple folders. They do not, which is why you have to buy them online. But when you buy them online, you'll see that Walmart's glue sticks are much cheaper than Target's. And Target's notebooks are much cheaper than Walmart's. And Amazon has everybody beat for lunch bags. So if you're like me, what you've been spending the last couple weeks doing, because you love yourself, is having three different tabs open on one side of your screen to price check, and then your color-coded school supply spreadsheet on the other half of your screen because you don't want to accidentally send Junior to school with the 26 pencils that seniors teacher requires because they can't learn. If you don't send them the pointy-tipped scissors instead of the dull-tipped scissors, no one's learning. They're going to live in a box down by the river. But this, is, this has been truly my reality. I think I spent about... 12 hours on this, so each kid has a line, and then when I have purchased the item, it, it's highlighted yellow, and then when it comes in, and it goes in the child's bag, it then changes to blue, times five kids. And I just wanna say to all of you older moms, none of you told me nothing about this. They do not put any of this in the manual. You all kindly explained how to nurse my children. You taught me what to do when they're up in the middle of the night fussing and I can't get them quiet, but nobody told me about school shopping. And isn't that the way of life, right? Is that there's these little things that you find when you get into the position 
that was not on the job description. And so you'll notice actually at the end of the service, at the bottom of the stairs to the right, there's this mom life table. And it exists because a bunch of us mamas realize that we can't do this thing without community. And we're too busy labeling erasers to make friendships by ourselves. So we're going to have to have a little help. So just, hey, if you're a mom, after the service, visit the table. They're luring you with um, candy and um, thoughtfully beribboned nail polish and all kinds of things. I recommend it. But it is funny how parenting is one of those things that you become a parent, but that's not the end, right? Then you live out life as a parent. And you, you buy expensive little things to put in your outlets so your babies don't zap themselves. And you pay for uniforms that cost three times what a non-logoed polo would cost, right? And you buy the right school supplies and you get the after-school snacks and you think about balanced meals. And you love them and you nurture them their whole lives. Right? It's like if you decide to be sober. You don't just decide one day, I'm going to be sober, and therefore you're sober forever. You might be sober, but you have to work at that thing, right? You might go to meetings. You make intentional choices of what to have or not have in your home, what relationships to keep in your life or to maybe weed out, the places that might not be a good idea to go right away. This is the same as marriage, right? You get married, you remain married, but if that's all you do, just have a little wedding, it's not gonna work out long term, right? No, you get married, and then you have like the deeply painful, vulnerable conversations, sharing your inner heart with another person who could stomp on it at any time, right? You learn the things your husband maybe doesn't wanna hear from you first thing in the morning. You perhaps learn that when you walk in the door, your wife might need you to take the baby so she can, like, shower, right? There's these things in life that you enter the position, but then you have to live it out. And so that's what we're talking about this morning when we're thinking about our faith, that we come to Jesus, that we decide to turn our life over to him, that we become a believer, but then we have to live it out. And it's the living it out that can become more challenging, that, that requires us to make lifestyle changes sometimes that we didn't think about ahead of time. So the, the text we're working with today is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, we imagine this being the most absurd set of instructions one can possibly give. I actually read online, because, you know, I was doing research and what different commentaries say. And da, da, da. There's this one guy that called this the impossible commandment, and he says it's not really meant for people to do at all. And I was like, I don't think that's how that goes. I don't think we get to be like, reading the Bible, reading the Bible, nah. Not that one. He didn't mean that one. He meant the one about loving me. He meant the one about, like, taking my sin. This one, probably not. This, this one is in the yellow category, right? This is in the optional. 
But I think it's important to figure out how does this actually work in our life practically? Because there's the two ends of the spectrum, right? The, the end where you say, this can't be for me at all because it's too radical. Or there's the part of you that like tries so hard to live it out that you're like stressing yourself out all the time and always falling short and always being frustrated. But in the middle is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. So we're going to take it um, piece by piece and, and try to figure out how, how does this look for us. Give thanks in all circumstances. We're going to go backward because why not? Give thanks in all circumstances. So we have to first think about who is being talked to, right? So these are the Thessalonians. These are people whose neighbors are turning them in for being Christians, whose friends have turned against them in a lot of uh, cases, whose families have turned against them. This are, is a people being deeply, deeply oppressed. And in this place of oppression, they're being told to give thanks in all circumstances. So what does that mean? What does this look like? Let me tell you a little story. I mean, I've told this story, but I checked, and it was like a long time ago, and frankly, I don't think y'all pay close enough attention to call me out on the fact that you've already heard this one, so we're going to go with it. So uh, a few years ago, eight years ago, I, uh, I don't believe in like um, New Year's resolutions because like I don't want to fail so I feel that if I don't make a New Year's resolution, I won't fail. I think that's like probably like the truth. But also, it's true that it has to be lifestyle change. You can't just like decide you're going to like, I'm not eating sugar this year. And then, you know, you have to work into it. So anyways, I, I was thinking about New Year's resolutions. I was thinking about maybe I should do something. And I was praying about it because I don't just want to, you know, not do it because I'm a wuss and I just want to feel good about myself. And I felt like God was saying, what is it you want from me this year? Not what is it that you think you can do in your own power, but what is it that I can do in you this year? Which is so significant because what it did was it switched the focus off of me making myself a certain type of way, and saying, God, I need you to make me a certain type of way. So I realized that I had, like, no joy. I, I was depressed, but not just, like, the depressed, or you, I just don't want to get out of bed. More like I was just not happy, like, ever. Like, I was having a nice time. I'd have a nice time. Things would be nice. But I wasn't, like, laughing ever. I was just kind of, like, muted, I don't want to live like that. I hate that. That's so boring. You ever feel like that in times of your life? You're just like, nothing is like, nothing's like zipping you. Nothing's like stirring you up on the inside. Everything just feels like survival all the time. So I said, God, this year I want you to give me joy. And what I was kind of expecting and frankly hoping for was that I was just going to get this onrush of happiness. That, like, things in my life would just start working out. But what really happened was I was finding myself with these little bursts of gratitude. 
where I'd be doing something, and my kids were little then, right, eight years ago, so like my littlest was, oh, I, not even born. I was pregnant, I'll do it, not very happy then sometimes. Um, but you know, I'd be like sick or tired or whatever, but I would just have this like thought pop into my mind, thank God for this baby in my womb. Thank God. Or I'd be having a hard time getting my little kids to bed. And I, just in the midst of it, in the midst of the brushing and the whatever, I would just have this thought pop into my head. What a gift these children are. There are women who would give anything for these babies. And I'd be here in my office like, eyeballs deep in spreadsheets and trying to figure them out and of course the formula is not working and be like oh so frustrated and then I would have this like just thought pop into my head the Holy Spirit you get to do spreadsheets for me you work for me and this gratitude for being a part of this beautiful community of people would just rush in and that just started happening over and over and over and over with like increased regularity to the point where sometimes I would then stop myself. And it wouldn't have to be some like great thought that came in. I would be in the middle of something frustrating or an encounter with my husband that wasn't going the way I wanted. And I would say, oh my gosh, what a gift it is to be married to such a man. But I started finding that the more gratitude I had, the more joy I had. Because gratitude takes away the sting of our frustrations. It takes away the focus on the circumstance, and it kind of brings us back to this bird-eye view of our lives that helps us to understand how good it is. And so this kind of practice, this discipline of finding the things to be grateful and finding the things that were good and worthy and righteous in the middle of the hard really took root in my life. And out of that, I became more joyful. Things that would bother me and kind of take me down for the rest of the day in my heart wouldn't have power over me anymore. And I found joy. So that's this year of it and at the end of this year my mom got sick and died unexpectedly three months later and then my nephew died unexpectedly two months later and I was plunged into the worst year of my entire life where everything was awful where I was like God get me out of here but the practice of finding gratitude changed everything for me. I remember specifically, I'm like at the funeral home picking out the stuff and having a well of joy, not like giggle joy, but like thank God that I get to create a service for such an amazing person. Thank God that I was entrusted with a family like mine. Thank God. And out of that, I found joy, not because things were so good, but because I was able to see in the middle of the difficulty that God was so good. And that joy was able to overflow from my life, not from my circumstances, but from the recognition of the purpose of God 
at work in the middle of the hard. So when we're talking about thanksgiving and when we're talking about gratitude and giving thanks in all circumstances, we're not talking about some type of like superficial, let's find the bright side. It's the incredibly deep, powerful, Holy Spirit thing of saying, this isn't any good, but oh my God, you are good. I don't know what to do in this circumstance. I don't know what to do in these relationships that are really hard right now. But thank you, God, for putting these people in my life because they're worth this conflict. I hate this sickness that we're dealing with here. But oh my gosh, do I have amazing people to stand with me. Thank God for that right? Give thanks in all circumstances, not because our circumstances are so good that it becomes easy to give thanks, but because our gratitude will protect our joy. Pray continually. Oh, hold on. Before that, I just want to note this thing, which I think is really good. Hebrews 13, 15 Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So in the Old Testament, there was like the sacrifice system, right? So like you did something wrong, you had to offer a sacrifice, and that's kind of how forgiveness worked back then. So when Jesus came, he was the ultimate sacrifice that paid for our sins, and we no longer had to give sacrifice to get forgiven, right? We know this. But there was another kind of sacrifice in the Old Testament, and that was the sacrifice of thanks and the sacrifice of praise. And that was that when something in your life happened that was good or exciting, you got a new job or you had a new child or, or you, you know, got a piece of property or whatever that thing was, you would go to the temple and you would take something that cost you something and you would offer it before the Lord as a thank offering. And so Hebrews is in the New Testament, and what this is saying is that even though we're not making sacrifices for our salvation, even though we might not be bringing things to the temple, we are still to be offering a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips. And so what we're doing when we're giving thanks to God isn't just like some system so that God blesses us with joy and with peace and all the things. It is us saying, God, in this circumstance, it costs me something to choose to give thanks. But I'm going to do it for you. Because sacrifice costs us. And when things are not easy, it costs us something to choose to give thanks back to God. And so what what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that we're giving thanks as a sacrifice to God. And so it might not be a good circumstance we're in, but the goodness of God remains. And so when I say, okay, God, my car isn't working, and and I don't have the money to fix it, and I don't know what to do, but I thank you that you have never let me down and that you've given me reliable transportation for all of these years. When I choose to give that instead of give myself pity, instead of give into 
despair. It costs me something, but that is the sacrifice of praise that comes from the fruit of lips, our lips, that openly profess his name. All right, let's talk about pray continually, because that's a sticker. Praying continually is always the one that makes me look at this verse and be like, nah. Like, I can't imagine what that could look like. Can you? I mean, so like, when I was younger, and I would look at this verse, and I wanted to be a good person, I was like, does this mean I have to have like a running monologue all the time? Okay, like, all right, all right, here we go, all right. God, I thank you that I'm in church right now and I'm speaking your message. I thank you that Julia is here and that blue looks really nice in her. Lord, thank you for making blue. Thank you for Julia. Thank you for cotton. Thank you. Please, please help me know what to say next in my PowerPoint. Please, thank you for the sound people who do the thing. Right, that should all be going on in my mind while I'm talking. That doesn't really work, but that's, that's what I thought, right? I mean, pray continually. When you ask a little kid, what does prayer mean? But I think even though I was little when I thought that, Sometimes, even when we're grown, we look at this and be like, that's, no, that's what that would be, and I can't, I can't quite do that. Here's something interesting. So, the word for prayer here, I am not going to try to say, because absolutely not, but it's that top one, and it's Greek, and it means to pray toward God, facing God. And I think it's interesting because this is the blanket word that encompasses all prayer, too. So there's like a whole bunch of different kinds of prayer, like words for prayer. There's like the word when you're asking for something specifically. There's the word for when you're giving thanks. There's a specific Greek word for when you're um, offering like supplication for you or for someone else, kind of like intercession. So these are all specific things. But this word here, the praying continually word, It encompasses all of that, any type of prayer. But also, it has a preposition, English people, we love those, um, that instructs us that it's prayer, but it's prayer that faces God. And I think that that is the overlooked and important part of this. That our posture facing God is just as much prayer as the words were speaking. Think about it. When Scott was uh, praying after the offering for Pakistan and Ukraine and our country and all this stuff, y'all weren't talking, right? But you were praying. What made it prayer that you were doing? Right? It, it was you were quieting your heart. You were facing your attention to God. And you were having the channels of communication with God were open, right? You were agreeing with Scott. You were thinking about Ukraine. You were like, yeah, totally. You were thinking about these people who've lost their, their lives in floods. You're like, yeah. What, what made that prayer was the posture toward God. And we think about these monks who spent their lives in prayer. What makes it prayer? They're not talking all the time. Prayer is facing God and creating a space for communication, loving communication. But sometimes that communication's real silent. Any of y'all introverts, if you're blessed with a wise spouse 
or wise roommates, they know that sometimes the most loving communication that they can make to you is shh. Uh, my husband and I are both really relational, but we're definitely introverts. So at night, after the kids go to bed, we just like sit on the couch in the same room, thinking warmly about each other, but not talking. No talking. Shh. All the words have been used up. There's no more words. But that's loving communication. We're thinking about kind of what each other was doing. If he left the room, I'd be bummed out. We're together in silence with our hearts turned toward each other. And so sometimes when we're praying, we think about, we have to like, okay, I need to pray. So let's stop everything I'm doing. Let's take a second and let's pray. And that's one kind of prayer for sure. But the kind of prayer we're talking about here is ongoing communication with God. Sometimes for me, it looks like, Lord, will you believe? Of course, he believes, he understands, but it's just me sharing my frustration. Sometimes I'm driving, and I'm like, Jesus, are you kidding me right now? I'm not taking his name in vain. I'm actually like, friend, do you see I have been cut off? Or like, there's been times I wake up in the morning and I like do not want to do my day. I don't know if any of y'all struggle sometimes, but sometimes I struggle wanting to do my day. I like wake up, I hit my alarm, and I say, Jesus, get me out of here. <laughs> it's a very spiritual prayer. Right? But it's this constant communication. When I'm frustrated, I think about telling Jesus. When I'm happy, I'm like, Jesus, will you believe? And it's not me talking all the time, or like, okay, God, what are you saying? Okay, God, what are you saying? Those times come, but it is our posture of our hearts facing God and becoming comfortable enough to sit in the silence with God and say, okay, Jesus, what are we doing here? I mean, sometimes, uh, uh, this week I did my first hospital visit, so usually Dwight does that, but he was on a mission trip this week, and so I did it, and I'd never done before. And, like, uh, it was for an older individual who hasn't been to church in years and years because they've been sick and whatever, but they needed a hospital visit, and I went, and, uh, and I had this, like, uh-oh, I mean, I know what to do, because Dwayne and I talked about this, and I said, okay, okay, run me through, how do I do this? You know, I'm new to this thing, whatever. Uh, so I knew, but I'm like, going up the elevator, and I'm like, Jesus, you have this, right? Like, you, you know what you're doing here, right? Because I'm just going to confess for a sec that I don't actually know how to do this thing. And, and, what it, it, and it went really well, but what happened was, when I walked into the hospital room, my listening ears to God were on a lot, right? That's the idea. Like, okay, Jesus, I don't know what I'm doing, so give me an idea here. If I'm supposed to, you know, like, I need some thoughts from you to pop into my brain. And sometimes that's what hearing God is, right? It's just you all of a sudden know something or, like, have an idea that you should probably do this, and it's outside of your experience, and it was actually, like, really beautiful, and it, like, went really well, and I, I was so honored, honestly, to be able to be there and to, like, give care and love and feed communion with my hands 
to a saint who's been following Jesus for 70 years. And I think there's this thing of like, just keeping our listening ears on to hear from God that is prayer. Keeping my heart faced toward God. Okay, God, I don't know what I'm doing, but we're here, right? We're good, me and you, we're good. Like constantly remaining in communication. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so part of what we're talking about prayer is, is this. It's presenting the parts of our heart that are having difficulty or the parts of our heart that are sick or sinful or anxious or angry and showing them to God. Because we like to kind of hide the things that aren't great about us and just talk to about God about the good things. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful family I have. I thank you for all this stuff. And nothing wrong. But sometimes when we can open the hard parts of our life up to God, it's like a wound. Like I, I uh, had a wound once that was kind of infected. What they had to do is they had to make sure it stayed open to the fresh air so healing could get into the ugly parts. You know what I mean? Because if they just put a Band-Aid on it and they just kind of covered it up and made it look good on the outside, the inside could remain extra infected. And so when we pray to God, when we bring our anxieties to God, what we're doing is saying, God, here's the anxious parts of my heart that aren't healthy. God, here, here are the painful parts, the sinful parts sometimes of my heart that isn't healthy. Instead of just trying to look good to you and make you think that I'm doing everything you want, heal this thing. Pour your healing into this part. And that's when the peace that passes understanding can guard our hearts and our minds because our hearts aren't set on the difficult things or the anxious things. They're in the place of loving communication with God. They're talking to God about the hard things. They're talking to God about our failures and, and our disappointments because that's, that's how relationships work, right? Like, I tend to feel like the people who are my close friends are the people who I let see my house dirty, right? There are levels of relatedness with Rebecca Gurney. And the first is you come to my house and it's very clean. And I have spent time, and my children have spent time, making this place look very nice. Second time, if you kind of pass that test and we're good, there might be a couple dishes in the sink. You might see a little something here or there. The next time, the toys might be out. And then, the last time, you see it in all of its splendor. And you might even help me with the dishes. Because we've reached a level, right? We've reached a level. You've seen me with no makeup multiple times. You've seen my hair. And now you've seen my kitchen right? But that's how it is with God. If we want to go deep with God, if we want to be intimate with God, then we have to give God 
the ugly parts of our heart that we didn't take the time to sanitize before we brought them into the presence of God. I was talking to somebody this week about why church hurts the worst hurt. Because churches can be hurtful, right? They can be painful. Because, you know, people you thought loved you and then they let you down in some way and, and it can be a whole, a whole hot mess. But in that conversation, I think we both realize that the reason why is because if you're doing it right, being at church is a vulnerable act. It's saying, I don't have everything together in myself without Jesus. And if you're doing it right, you let some of those trusted people at church see you like you let God see you. You let some of those wounds be open to air so they can be healed. But the difficult thing is when we're all bringing our whole selves, sometimes those parts of ourselves aren't great. And sometimes that hurts people. But what we don't want is everyone to just like sanitize themselves so well that like we never get to know each other. What we have to do is learn that conflict is going to happen sometimes. And sometimes my wound might bleed on you, and I didn't mean to. And then we're going to have healthy, loving conversations that repair relationship. But we don't want to just cover it over with our brothers and sisters, and we don't just want to cover it over with God. The next part of that passage, well, the first part, but you know how we're doing. Uh, rejoice always. And I think this comes back to what we are just saying, that what Paul's asking them to do when he's saying rejoice always isn't cover it over, put on a good face, and go on out there, killer. Right? He's not asking us to be one of those, like, Christians that, like, takes this to the point where they're like, Everything's doing great, brother. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. The Lord's good, you know? I'm great. It's great. Yeah, no, you know, my, my spouse left me. My kids are all addicted, and I've lost my job. Things are great. Things are very good. I'm rejoicing. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Right? That actually is not what the text is referring to. Thank God. And it can be tricky that part of the passage, because when you hear rejoice always, sometimes there can be shame around the parts of your life that aren't feeling very rejoicey. I don't know if anybody here has struggled with this, but because sometimes I deal with some little depression stuff here and there, mental health, it's real, whatever, um, there was a time that I carried so much shame about that What's wrong with me? You know, if I was a Christian, if I was doing this right, I wouldn't be depressed, right? Like, what's wrong in my relationship with God that I can't just, like, fix my heart and be fine? How come I'm, like, walking around wanting to cry? You know, if I was a good Christian, I'd be able to rejoice always. If I was a Christian, maybe, you know, my grief wouldn't have lasted so long and I could have just, oh, you know, they're in the presence of God. Praise Jesus. Right? I had a woman in my mom's wake come up to me laughing, giggling. Because <sighs> she's terrible. Don't say this stuff. Come up to me and she's like, 
she's not here. She's in heaven with Jesus. And I was like, oh, well, then let's cancel this whole thing and hire a karaoke, right? Like, rejoicing always doesn't mean pretending that things are great. This is what the word rejoice means here. To have a sense of well-being, to be calmly happy, and it was commonly used in greetings and farewells. And so what we don't want to do is be like, well, that's not the translation and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, is that there's words that mean overflowing happiness, joy. But this one, rejoice always, it's a solid sense of well-being. Its baseline, our baseline, is good. And I think when we're talking about prayer being this centered, open communication with God, that we're continually bringing our hard things to God, continually receiving his peace back, continually bringing our anxieties to God, hearing from him, or or just letting that quiet with him heal the parts of our heart. Our baseline goes from like this to this more. And the reason for that is because our heart is less dependent on the circumstances around us and more dependent on the solidity of who Jesus is in my life in this moment. I had, um, you know, I was just having your garden variety hard time a couple weeks ago. Just like getting all the kids back to school and then like trying to do some projects that, you know, were a little harder than I was hoping they would be. And, and I was just feeling overwhelmed. And you know the things you hoped summer would be, like getting stuff done wise that it just didn't, you know, like, man, I really thought I was going to do tons of meal prep. <laughs> man, I really thought I was going to purge this thing. And it was, like, fine. I wasn't, like, depressed. But I was just kind of, like, garden variety bummed out, you know? So I was just thinking about that. I was like, oh, this is kind of overwhelming, and that was kind of overwhelming, and this is kind of overwhelming. And then I, I went to, oh, I had a meeting with somebody, and we just opened the meeting in prayer. And just in that moment, I was like, oh. It, the stuff fell away. And I remembered that my life is centered here. My posture is towards God. And all of this stuff is still true. And all of this stuff is still hard. But my moods and my life is not hitched to those crazy circumstances giddy up. You know what I mean? It's hitched to the consistency of God. And that solidity goes with me wherever I am. And so rejoice always isn't like, just be happy. It's, I'm going to be fine. This is not outside the reach of God the Holy Spirit. I am a child of God. He has never left me. He will not start now. This circumstance is not bigger than my God. And speaking those truths, sometimes out loud, changes the air where we are. Um, My husband has this practice in his classroom. He's a teacher. He calls it car washing, where he stands 
a kid in front of the class, class of 25 kids, public school, and he trains them in the art of encouragement and put-ups. And so for this length of time, all the kids participate in naming everything that's great about that kid. And they do it like once a week, and they spend the whole school year doing that. And he calls it car washing because it's a time for the class to come together and to wash the difficulty off of that kid's heart for a time. And the kids get really good at it. They like come up with these long things, things they've noticed in the hall, things that are like healthy, and it changes the air in his classroom. And sometimes our hearts need a car wash of truth. Sometimes our hearts need us to be like, this is not too big for God. Who am I? I am a child of God. This is difficult, but God, you are bigger. And so as we keep our hearts aligned with who he is and his truth, we find ourselves with more of a um, like calmly happy, a solid sense of well-being. Philippians 4-7 is like one of my favorites. That says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It transcends all understanding because our understanding of our world tells us that we should not feel peaceful, that we should feel scared or mad or, or, or anxious or whatever the things are, right? But the peace of God says, you are my child. And in that place, we find peace. We find rest for our souls. We find refreshment, not aside from the difficulty, but in the middle of the difficulty. And this is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. Rejoicing, constant thanksgiving, being in a place of loving communication with God is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. That we, we aren't meant to be living one circumstance to the next. We're not meant to be living lives that baseline is like this. We're not meant to be living a life or life where we feel just alone, where we have to cover up all of our pain to be acceptable enough so someone can love us. But the will of God for us in Christ Jesus is that the peace of God which transcends all understanding, would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Will you stand with us as we go to communion?